Welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. I'm your host today, Kristen Carey, and you guys, I am so excited about my guest today. I want to welcome Leslie Vernick to the Living Truth Podcast. Leslie, I am so thankful you're here today. I'm so happy to be here with you, Kristen. I got to spend a weekend with Leslie. Michael and I got to spend a whole weekend with her and several other amazing people impacting the kingdom of God. And we got to know her and her husband. And we are so grateful for Leslie's ministry. I've been following Leslie's work for many years. She is a licensed counselor. She's a coach. She is impacting women all over the world. And her special impact right now is going towards women who have been in emotionally destructive relationships. So she's authored many books, including The Emotionally Destructive Relationship and The Emotionally Destructive Marriage. I recommend these books to people all the time. I tell people, follow her YouTube channel, listen to her, get her blogs, read her materials, because Leslie, you are the most Christ-centered and biblical paired with healthy spirituality, healthy like use of psychology, use of healthy relationship principles, you marry those two in a way I have never seen any other human being do. It's amazing. Well, you know, yeah, thank you so much. It was interesting when I started writing, I asked God for the gift of tongues and he gave it to me in writing. But one of the things I complained to him about was I wanted to be more, you know, I wanted to be more like Anne Boscombe when she writes so beautifully and eloquently. And, and I'm just like this practical nuts and bolts writer, <laughs> but that was my gift to really blend truth that even the world discovered um, into biblical principles that made sense in practical how-tos. I think the church has been really lacking how to forgive. They tell us to forgive, how to reconcile. How do you reconcile when you can't trust someone? I mean, we don't answer those tough questions. So really working at the principles of how do you do it and can you do it? Is it even wise or possible? And I think we've shied away from those questions and we therefore have not given people real answers. And in not giving them answers, we give them spiritual band-aids sometimes or quick fixes. Like we want them to just get over it. And the messaging I hear from women who come into my groups that they've gotten from people helpers or friends, really well-meaning people who love God is so toxic sometimes. It's heartbreaking, right? It is. You know, there's a verse in Jeremiah that I read right when I finished graduate school that said he was talking to the leaders of the people. And he said, you heal the wounds of my people superficially by promising peace, peace, when there is no peace. And I just took that verse to heart and said, God, let me never put band-aids or duct tape around a person or around their marriage and call that good. That's not enough. Oh, that is so true. Oh my gosh. So Leslie, part of why I point so many women to your materials is because our audience is mostly men and women who've struggled with sexual integrity or sexual betrayal. So um, how prevalent do you think emotionally destructive relationships are among Christian couples? You know, Lifeway Research did some uh, surveying uh, of pastors and how aware they were of this in their church. But bottom line is one in four Christian women report being in an emotionally destructive marriage. That's a lot of women. And, you know, we haven't defined that really well because, you know, if she's not hit, is she really abused? Is she just making this up? And so we haven't defined what an emotionally destructive or abusive marriage really looks like um, to people's satisfaction. But one in four women, even if they don't have the words to describe it, they know it because their body is screaming, I'm not safe, 
I don't feel okay. I don't feel loved. I don't feel especially safe enough to share my heart, to be vulnerable, to rely on this person. And that's a horrible kind of marriage where you don't feel safe with that person. It really is. So when it's so hard for people to define what an emotionally destructive marriage or relationship is. I love the fact that you're so practical, Leslie, because here's where you can spell it out for our listeners. What are the characteristics of an emotionally destructive marriage? Yeah. So, so I give a couple different ways of looking at things. First, we can take a disappointing marriage, a difficult marriage and a destructive marriage. So they can have some overlapping features, just like bronchitis and lung cancer have some overlapping features of nagging cough, chronic fatigue, shortness of breath, but they're completely different diagnoses. And so I think it's really important that we understand that, you know, a destructive marriage may have some elements of difficult and certainly may have some elements of disappointing, but a destructive marriage is usually characterized by five distinct patterns and they don't have to have all of those patterns, but even one of those patterns. And what I mean by patterns, Kristen, is that all of us are capable of sin. Obviously the Bible tells us that we're sinners and we all stumble in many ways, James 3, 2 says. So sin isn't what we're talking about here because Otherwise, we'd all be in destructive marriages or destructive relationships. What we're talking about is unrepentant sin that goes on and on and on and on over and over again, patterns in relationships. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be abusive incidents. There most likely are abusive incidents. I've had them in my family as I yelled at my kid once and pulled him up by his arm and pulled his little elbow out of his socket in a moment of anger. That was an abusive incident, but I didn't lie about it. I didn't cover it up. I didn't make excuses. I didn't blame him. I repented and did whatever I needed to do personally to grow into the kind of parent I needed to be. So I never did that again. So that's different. So well, what the five characteristics we're going to look at is obviously any kind of abuse, um, but even physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse, those would be obviously destructive to a relationship. But I think more subtle things are controlling behavior that may not look abusive. It's under the guise of I'm your head, I'm your authority. I know what's best for you. Do it my way because God says I get my way. That kind of oppressive controlling behavior can be very destructive to a person in the marriage as well as the marriage. Also deceit, which is certainly a big characteristic of your audience when you're lying um, about what you're doing and who you are, um, you can't have a relationship with someone. You, can, you can't have intimacy. And so in marriage, you need that safety in order to have intimacy. In Proverbs, it says, for example, he trusts her to do him good, not harm all the days of his life. And if you don't have that basic trust and safety because someone's lying to you about everything, um, it becomes a destructive marriage. And then also overly dependent behavior where I need you to be God for me in order for me to be okay. Um, is, can be destructive. And then indifference. And oftentimes when someone's involved in the sexual addiction life, they become so in to that world that they're very indifferent to the emotional, physical, uh, financial needs of their spouse. And there's just, they're just checked out of the relationship altogether. And that indifference is extremely painful to the one who's living with someone who's not there. Oh my gosh. So in light of those five characteristics, Leslie, it's clear that every single person who is married to somebody with sexual secrets, with a sex addiction or compulsive porn use or affairs, that is an emotionally destructive relationship unless that person will change and repent. Yeah, because it's been my experience in counseling couples and individuals who have sex addictions. It's not the 
addiction itself. It's the deceit behind the addiction. Um, So if a man humbles himself or a woman humbles herself and says, oh my gosh, I'm caught in a besetting sin, right? Which is what the Bible calls it. I'm trapped. I'm a slave to sin in this area. I need help. I'm going to get accountability. I think there's a lot of support around that uh, for all of us. But when you minimize, deny, blame, sneak, hide, gaslight, which is you know, tell someone that they didn't see what they see and rearrange reality like we see all over our world these days. Um, it's <laughs> it's crazy making and it's very destructive. It is. Why do you think it's so hard for women who are in these type of marriages? Like if there's not um, physical and sexual abuse, but it's more the other characteristics like the rearranging reality, the deception, the um, the hiding, those types of things. Why is it hard for them to see what's happening to them and to disrupt those unhealthy patterns? I think for two reasons. One, I think especially Christian women have not been taught some of the uh, interpersonal and personal qualities they need to trust their own perceptions. Um, I think that we have been taught to be more dependent on a male perspective. What does he think? What should I do? You know, help me to figure this out instead of trusting our own sense of knowing. And I'm not saying that's always right, but we tend to dismiss that. I also think that women are more open to feedback from other people generally, especially people they love. And so when their husband tells them, no, that didn't happen, or it's your fault, I act out. If only you would be more, um, they tend to stop and they tend to self-reflect on that. And they take that ownership like, okay, what do I need to do to be a better wife? And those are good qualities. So I don't want to make those into bad qualities, but because they're good qualities, someone who's more manipulative and deceitful and abusive can use those good qualities, just like kindness and forbearance forbearance and forgiveness and all those wonderful attributes, that gentleness, forgiveness that we should have. Someone who's sneaky around all of that and can be manipulative can actually use our good qualities Mm -hmm. if we also don't couple those with discernment, courage, and good boundaries, which women often haven't been taught to have, nor have they been validated to have them, that somehow that is mean-spirited and not very gentle and not nice. And so we get scared about that. Mm-hmm. Why do you think women are not taught those things? Is it start in our childhoods? Is it more of a, is it more of a Christian feature? Like it's, is it all women or is it specifically Christian women that you think have been taught that way? You know, um, I'm not an expert in all women, but I think when I interview young women, even now, who have grown up through a conservative church, if we think about, this gets a little bit involved, but if we think about the image of God, the image of God, he says, is male and female in the image of God, he created them. And so when we are to mature psychologically, spiritually, to become the person that God called us to be, we should embody some of the both characteristics. And so when we think about a healthy male, for example, most, uh, both secular and Christians would describe him with both masculine and feminine qualities. And they wouldn't label it that way, but they would say, you know, he'd be assertive and he'd be gentle and he'd be humble and he'd be a leader. You know, so there'd be this both masculine and feminine mix. But when we think about the psychology of women, even in the 50s and 60s, psychologists were beginning to realize that the psychology of women was all feminine. She's to be loving and kind and gentle and humble and forgiving and submit. They were all feminine qualities. And I don't think the church 
can recognize that also women need to have some masculine. They need to be bold. They need to be assertive. They need to know their own mind. They can be leaders as Deborah was, as Esther was, as um, Abigail was in that moment. And we tend to see those kind of women as bossy, unsubmissive, you know, ungodly women instead of saying, wow, you're an amazing woman. Yeah. Wow. How do you think that the tide could turn for the church? with regards to um, the way that we maybe limit women to those feminine qualities only. Like, is this part of your mission, Leslie, to like it, it rise up women so that they can stand in their strength and the strength that God has given them? So like a grassroots movement from within. One of the things I'm learning when I'm dealing with women in emotionally destructive marriages is that somehow they've believed that saving their marriage is more important than maturing their spirit and soul and body. And God has called all of us to steward our one precious life into maturity. So we start as a baby and our goal is to grow up just like a caterpillar is to grow up into a butterfly and an acorn is to grow up into an oak tree. Each one of us have something inside of us that God has put inside and that we are responsible to steward. Paul talked to young Timothy and he said, Timothy, Fan into flames the gifts that God has given you. And because as women, we're so relational and we so want our marriages to work, sometimes in that mindset, especially from the church, we've allowed our husband to decide who we can be. And in a destructive marriage, like my husband's been wonderful. He's been very nourishing and helping me become all that God wants me to be. But in a destructive marriage, what you have is someone who says, my needs matter more than your needs. My feelings matter more than your feelings. My um, desires matter more than your desires. And in our Christian teaching, when that's a man to a woman, we've taught women to submit to that and kind of squash their identity and their personhood under the roles of wife and mother. And I don't think that does anyone any good. Not, not a woman, for sure, because she's now not developing into who she was called to be. Not a man, because he now is her God. And it doesn't help the marriage, because now the marriage is a very uncharacteristic picture of Christ in the church. And so my mission is to help women, especially in this population, to validate, not to be a bully mom or a bully woman, that's not who God wants us to be, just like a bully man, but to learn to understand that they do have a person behind the role and their mission in life is not just to be an object to use, but a person to love and be loved. And that's crucial to their well-being and growth. That is so exciting. I just, that's part of why I love to share your teaching, Leslie, is because I think more and more women need to know this and need to hear this. So I hear women all the time from conservative Christian backgrounds misunderstand the, um, what it means when the scripture talks about submitting. And so they think it means like do what he says, like obey, right? But how do you define submission? Well, first of all, I think it's helpful to define headship because I think sometimes we submit to headship that's not really headship, but it's oppression. And so when Jesus talks about submitting to our oppressors, he actually is much more winsome about that. And we won't have time to go into that, but, but it's not the same as being in a relationship with someone. So headship, when Jesus is describing headship to his disciples, of course, they thought we get to be the boss now. And he's saying, wait a minute, guys, that's not what headship looks like. And he showed them by washing their dirty feet. 
And then they still didn't get it because remember James and John were arguing about who was going to get the seat next to Jesus in heaven. It's that first, I want to be, I want to be, it's all about me kind of thing. I'm the head. So I get to be the boss. And Jesus said, Hey guys, my, my authority is not like the world's authority. Don't rule over people like the Gentiles do oppressing them. But instead, if you want to be a leader, you get to serve first. That's really the definition of biblical headship is that you get to lead in servanthood in your family, in your business, in your, you know, world, wherever you have the opportunity, excuse me, wherever you have the opportunity to be a leader, you get to do that through servant leadership. So when we endorse selfish, self-centered leadership as biblical headship, that's, you're actually enabling, when you submit to that over and over again, you're enabling sin in your family to flourish. And you're also enabling your husband's mindset to not be challenged that I get my way and I get to do everything my way and you just have to obey me because I'm the man. That's nowhere in scripture does it support that. And so I think it's really important that we rearrange our idea of our role as a wife, first and foremost, is to be our husband's helpmate. And what does that mean? And it means we help him become all that God called him to be, just like he's supposed to help us become all that God called us to be. So if we're to help him become all that God called him to be, does that mean like the emperor's new clothes. We stay silent when he's running around butt naked or do we speak the truth yeah. in love, right? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That is so good. Um, so because so many of our listeners are um, dealing with really unhealthy sexual patterns in one member of the coupleship and the other person having experienced the betrayal and the devastation of that, um, I'd love to hear your perspective and what you see with women that you've uh, ministered to over the years um, of the, the ways that these emotionally destructive marriages play out in the bedroom. Like how does, does the, I know that it can be varied, like every situation is different, but how do you see these emotionally destructive marriages, the patterns seep into the bedroom and how it impacts couples and the way they relate to each other sexually? Well, let's just take the issue of control. Okay. So if I'm the head and I get my way all the time, now you don't have a voice and you don't have a choice. So marital rape in the bedroom yes, is often happening. And it may not be looked at as rape because a woman may comply because she knows if she doesn't, he's going to be hurting their children or screaming at the dog or kicking the cat or his his way of controlling her is to say, if you don't do what I say in the bedroom, you're going to pay. And she knows that, or your kids are going to pay, or our kids are going to pay, or something's going to happen that she doesn't want to happen. So she complies, not because she wants to be intimate, but because she's afraid. And that is your big red flag. When you feel afraid in a relationship that's supposed to be safe, that is your big red flag. If you're afraid to be truthful, if you're afraid to say no, if you're afraid to be yourself, if you're afraid to have your own opinion, those are huge red flags that this relationship is really off. So it happens with control by being forced to have sex or do sex in ways that you don't want to do and being told you're unsubmissive and ungodly and you know made fun of and you know just degraded because you won't or you don't want to or you don't do it the way he wants you to. Um, so that would be one way. A second way is, is feeling objectified, like you are nothing more than an object to use. And so your body is not your own. He may use spiritual 
oppression. You know, it's that first Corinthians seven passage says your body's not your own. So you can't say no. Being married gives me, you know, a uh, unlimited sex card and you can't have any rights here at all. And so this distortion of that passage, and I don't have time to explain what that really means, but that distortion of that passage, I think women need to educate themselves. That's not what it means. And so you don't have to do that. Um, but we just kind of fall into fear and compliance because we're afraid of the consequences. Mm-hmm. Another way that sexual sin impacts the marriage is that there's just this betrayal of um, trust and intimacy and safety. And he's off in another world with another person. And you're feeling rejected and abandoned and angry and furious and there's no conversation about this there's no concern for the impact it's like if you crash into someone's car you wouldn't just say well I'm a Christian and you're a Christian so you have to forgive me so let's not talk about this again and that's sort of what these guys do like all right it's supposed to be over under the blood right keeps no record of wrong so so don't even ask me to be accountable don't ask me to pay for the damages don't ask me to get you a rental car. Don't ask me to deal with why I keep crashing my car into the same car over and over again. Just leave it alone. And that's crazy making because you can't bring healing to a broken relationship without talking about the damages that were done. And Christian counselors and pastors really avoid that topic because it's extremely uncomfortable to someone to do it. And so we don't push them through that page and let them do that so that they can begin to really heal and own what they've done and own the effect of what they've done on someone else. Mm. Wow. That was really well said. So Leslie, what, what are your biggest um, pointers or encouragements for how to help women in emotionally destructive relationships to walk in truth and break these unhealthy patterns, both in the bedroom and without? Yeah, I would have two things for them to say. I would have two things to say to them. First, understand that sexual addiction is not a marriage problem. It causes marriage problems, but it is not you. It's not a marriage problem. And Kristen, you do this really well in your teaching, but it's about a problem inside of him. And he needs to deal with that problem before you can restore and repair your relationship. And if he refuses, don't lie to yourself that you can have a safe, loving relationship while he's got a whole secret life. You can't. So he needs to deal with that and be willing to deal with that and own that in repentance and in change before you can put repairs in place. However, during that phase, if it ever happens, and even if it doesn't, you have your own work to do. First of all, it's very tempting to repay evil for evil. And so when your husband has done evil to you, the first thing we want to do is do evil back, either verbally, sexually have an affair, show him what it feels like, all those kind of things. And so the Bible tells you part of your job here is to guard your heart above all else, for it is the wellspring of life. So how do you guard your heart against bitterness and resentment and insecurity and fear that may come upon you that said, I don't care what you're doing, just don't leave me. That's a, that's a beggar's position. And God doesn't want you to be a beggar for anything. He's given you everything you need. So you have your own work to do in this phase of disruption of your marriage. And it may not be reconciling your marriage just yet. It may be that you need to learn how to be the woman that you want to be strong and lovely and kind and generous and forgiving and good with really good boundaries so that these things don't keep happening to you. Yeah, I find a lot of women, I, I'll tell them the analogy of like, it's like you have third degree burns all over your body after you find out about this sign of sexual betrayal. So like you wouldn't want people to be touching you if you got third degree burns all over your body. So like it's okay to take a break, to get some space, to separate if you need to, 
you know, do, do what you need to do to like heal, go to, th- go to, you'd have to go to physical therapy. You'd have to do a whole bunch of stuff to heal from that level of, of burn. And this is what happens oftentimes in counseling and even in pastoral counseling is when the husband looks repentant, whether he is or not, he, he may genuinely be repentant, but then all the energy goes into helping him feel better. <laughs> you know, like, oh, we're so glad you repented. Good job. And the, the casualty of his sin, the woman who's in intensive care, she's supposed to like give him encouragement and support him and be his partner and help him feel better. And it's like, she doesn't have anything in her to do that because she's also in intensive care because he just burned her, you know, with his gasoline and she's got to recover too. And so I think it's really important that you not feel guilty for taking care of you. That's your responsibility. If you were hit by a car and you were in intensive care, I hope you wouldn't feel guilty if your husband said, but who's going to make me dinner? Figure it out. You've got to take care of you. That's right. That is so true. Um, okay. The last question I want to ask you, Leslie, about this is um, I heard your teaching um, in your webinar recently. I have never heard somebody explain all of the scriptures about divorce as well as you did. I took frantic, furious notes. I was just astounded. And I have other women in my group who heard it too. And they were like, oh my gosh, that was so helpful. So then I went and and last night in my private Facebook group for women in betrayal trauma situations, I asked women who've gone through a divorce to share like everything they believed about divorce, about how God feels about divorce, all of that before they went through it, all of their hangups and stuff, because there's real times where a husband is not changing. He's refusing to get his recovery done and he's continuing his infidelity or his porn addiction, et cetera. And so there's a lot of misconceptions about divorce in the church. And I would just love to hear your explanation of that verse in Malachi that people quote, you know, God yeah, hates so, divorce and how they mm-hmm. simplify it. Yeah. More of the recent translations of that really, it doesn't say that. And so um, again, translators translate things according to their own mindset and culture and way they think it should say. And so what it really says is I hate how a man treats a woman when he divorces her. Um, it's, it, and this word divorce is actually two different words in the Old Testament. So if you read through different passages in Deuteronomy and Exodus, and, and there was pretty much divorce in the Old Testament. Um, and God didn't say all divorce is bad, but there were two different kinds of divorce. One was just divorce, which really means I've abandoned you. And then the second word in the Hebrew is document of divorce. And when you read it, even in the English versions, they'll tell you the difference. If it says document of divorce, that was an official divorce decree. And every time that word is used, the woman was free to remarry because in that culture, women had their livelihood based on who took care of them. They were a dependent patriarchal culture. And so God cared about women, even if they were divorced, he wanted them to have an official divorce so that they were free to go remarry. But in the Malachi passage, it doesn't use that word. It uses the word, I hate when you take the wife of your youth and throw her away, give her a divorce, you abandon her. So you haven't officially divorced her. So she's not free to leave or remarry or do anything. You've left her in limbo land and you go find a younger model. That's what he's hating. And so, so often we've made this a global statement that God hates all divorce. I don't believe he does. He does hate some kinds of divorce. And I think we need to pay attention to that. But 
the opposite of God hates all divorces. God would rather you stay in a marriage that is a lie and pretend things are fine when they're not. That's so opposed to what God loves. He loves truth and he loves honesty and he loves real relationships and he loves reconciliation, everything that we talk about. And so when you're in a marriage where there is no repair, no trust, no reconciliation, isn't it more honest to call it dead? Just like if you were wake, woke up and your husband was dead in bed and you didn't like it, but he was dead. And it's better to just call it for what it is, as hard as yeah. that is to say, He's dead. The marriage is dead. And the divorce decree is just an official announcement of that reality. Mm. That is mind blowing because what you just described is that, that God, of God hating when a man treats a woman this way and like abandons her for a younger model. That's what happens a lot of times when men are addicted to porn. They're basically abandoning their wife emotionally and sometimes yeah. sexually so they can go spill their energy sexually on other women or, or online, on virtual, you know. Well, and, and, and sexual addiction, I mean, we haven't really gotten into why someone is a sex addict, but one of the things that I think is really important is that we think about the heart because we're looking at the behavior, but if we yeah. think about the heart of a sex addict, there's two qualities of the heart that I look at. One is laziness and the other is selfishness. And, you know, when we're lazy, so it's much easier to sit in front of a computer where a wife, uh, not a wife, but a woman is saying, you are the man and you're so hot and whatever they're doing to make you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm the man. <laughs> and it's much easier to, to have a sexual fantasy relationship, just like an affair. It's a sexual fantasy relationship. You don't have kids together. You don't have to make bills together. You don't have to do COVID together. You just have to sleep together. That's pretty easy, right? So when you have this sexual fantasy relationship, you're being lazy and selfish in that to have a real relationship with you, my wife, I've got to actually talk to you and be honest and I have to care for you and I have to do things for you and I have to give back. I don't want to do that. It's much easier to sit in front of my computer and pretend like I am the king of the best of the wonderful men in the world and I don't have to give anything back to her. I could just take and take and take. And that is a mindset shift that must change if someone's really going to have true relationships because real relationships are hard work. They sure are. Yeah, so many couples I think when they get to that place where it gets really hard, they think, oh, maybe I married the wrong person or I made a mistake. But it's or because they've lost that spark and it's no longer easy like when you were dating. But that happens to every single marriage. And that's where Absolutely. the hard work really begins. And, and that's where some of the gifts really start. Yeah, and it, it's true. And I was just talking to a man and um, I was at a different business meeting and he was at a restaurant that I was at and you know, all the people were around and he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a relationship coach. He goes, Oh, I, I've done that. Been there three times. I, I just can't find the right one. <laughs> and he had this idea that if it was the right one, it would be easy. But here's a metaphor that may help your listeners. So if you built this amazing house and it was everything you wanted, you know, granite countertops or quartz countertops, big windows, hardwood floors, three tile bathrooms, 3000 square feet, and you moved in and it was great. Like a new marriage. It's great. You love it, but you never, took care of it. You never cleaned it. You never vacuumed. You never washed the windows. You never took out the garbage. You never did the dishes and you had a leaky toilet and you never fixed that. And you found out that you had termites and you never fixed that. It's not about getting a new house. It's about recognizing you didn't take care of the house you had. 
And so you have some maintenance and repair work to do in any long-term relationship. I've been married almost 45 years. We have had some rough times. But if you're not committed to that integrity of, I'm going to do the maintenance required to keep this relationship going. And when it breaks down, which it will, because you are sinners, we're going to have to talk about it. We're going to have to confess our sins. We're going to have to do some repair work. We're going to have to do some personal work so that we continue to flourish together and individually. And if not, our house will break down. Yeah, that's so well said. Leslie, you have given me so many things to think about. Like, I love all of your analogies. You are both practical, but you're also able to give these analogies that really ring true to what is happening in in, in these marriages that it's very hard to pinpoint and describe. And so I think God has just given you a gift of being able to see it and call it what it is and use these great metaphors to explain here's what needs to be done and here's why. And I think our listeners are going to benefit so much from listening to this episode. I just want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule today uh, to spend this time with us. You're so welcome. Thanks for asking me. Awesome. Well, friends, um, I will leave the information about Leslie's website and her YouTube channel and all the things you need to know if you want to follow her in the comment section below. And we just thank you so much for tuning in and can't wait to be with you again on the next episode.